and welcome to Gaming Broadcast, the official podcast of GamingBroadly.com. I'm your host, Jamie Dale, the main broad over at Gaming Broadly, and today we are doing a part three, the final part for our developer doldrum series, and joining us is Rachel Hammond. Um, if this is your first time coming, coming to this series, developer doldrums is... A collection of conversations with game developers about what makes them sad, which is surprisingly more humorous than I was expecting when I first started the whole series. So tune in. It should be fun. Rachel Hammond has been making video games for all sizes for more than 10 years, a whole decade, and she still remembers the game review. Congratulations. You made a six-year-old cry. She currently works in the AAA game space at a company that will inevitably be a poorly kept secret as the podcast goes on. So, hi, Rachel. How Hello. are you? <laughs> I, I laughed so hard when I read your bio because I've never had anyone want to proudly talk about the times they've made small children cry. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, this is what this episode is about stories so i love stories um so you you mentioned that where you work is a poorly kept secret are we gonna ruin this secret right now well not <laughs> i i hope i can keep it a little bit longer than this but i i do work for a triple a game company however the rules of triple a game companies oftentimes have rules about getting approval before you do an interview and i can do an interview if people are interviewing me as me talking about my experiences however i'm supposed to get approval if i'm doing an interview that is as an employee of this giant company that does these things if i am representing the company in any way shape or form so I'm not representing my company. I'm not representing my studio or my project in any way. I'm talking about my own experiences in the game industry and trying to keep a little bit of separation there for as long as I can. I give, I give it 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's only so many AAA studios. So some of your, for all of our very attentive gamers, I'm sure some of your descriptions of games, they'll know. Somebody, somebody is going to be like, oh... Yeah, I've, I've heard of this company before. <laughs> it's quite well known. Yeah. <laughs> I would say it's pretty popular. Uh, I love the fact that you have to give that that story, uh, mostly because as folks who are, have seen part one and part two of the series, we've been interviewing a really wide range of game developers from basically a one-woman company with husband for support and then a two-person company. Um, and of course, when they spoke, they were representing their company because... There is, there is no separation between <laughs> their identity and the company. Um, it's the same thing. So I love the fact that there's actually this, this interesting separation between identity and work, um, workplace. Maybe not work. I feel like all of us treat our work very personally. But now into the meat of the question or the first question is: How did you get into programming? Specifically, game development programming. Game development programming is the only type of programming I cared about when I started learning to program. Oh, very narrowly focused. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I was, I must have been four or five years old, and we got a Nintendo Entertainment System for Christmas one year, and we were playing it, and I was uh, with my older sister playing Mario Brothers, and I just had this thought, 
I'm going to do this when I get older. Your kids want to be like a, a fireman or policeman. I'm going to make video games. That's that's what I, I cared about. Oh, that's amazing. You grew up to do just that. Yeah, and I didn't think I would because usually that's also <laughs> – usually that childhood dream is like the quickest thing to die for a person. Oh, God. Uh, when so I, saddening. Yeah, I was in middle school. And I still wanted to learn how to program video games. I was playing games my whole life. And I wanted to learn how to program them. And this is a time that was uh, before the internet. Like there there wasn't an internet that you could really get to from your house. You had to be at a college campus on Linux and it was all text-based. Like there, there wasn't what we see now is this online collection of information. So I had to find a book on learning to program. And I, I found a book. And these things were stupidly expensive. And I – begged my father for what must have been a full year for a book and a compiler because back then you actually had to buy a compiler. Uh, you couldn't just like get a free one on the internet. Uh, I begged for one. I got the book. I got the compiler. I started trying to learn to program. And I'm in, I guess, sixth or seventh grade. And the book that I got was for college students. And it didn't go well. Uh, <laughs> predictably. You weren't a child prodigy, Rachel? I mean, I think I was. But <laughs> yeah. even then, that was pushing it. Little, little like 12-year-old Rachel gets this college textbook on programming. <laughs> and I got Hello World. And I got inputs. And I ran into bugs that I couldn't quite figure out. And I was reading the book. But I wasn't, like, getting everything but it became this thing that I kept coming back to. And I kept coming back to programming on my own time, uh, all through middle school and then high school. And then in high school, I started learning more in general, and that helped me understand the book a lot better. And I took my first programming class in high school where the teacher was an idiot. Uh, oh, oh, I have so much disdain for this man. He did not know the programming language that he was teaching. And so the best uh, improvement that I had in programming in literally my entire life was my junior year of high school when I learned programming out of spite, uh, which was an interesting uh, thing to discover about my personality. Who were you spiting? The teacher. Oh, he okay. Went, like, I, I had to prove how much smarter I was than this really <laughs> dumb man uh, who refused to help any of the kids. So it wound up that I st – I, I, did as much as I could to learn programming as well as I could. And I read my uh, class textbook. I read the other books that I had acquired by this point. And I tutored everyone else in my class who was at all interested in learning to program. I started teaching back then, essentially, in high school uh, out of spite because I'm like, I can do this better than you. Uh, and then around this time, there were a lot of magazine articles coming out. This was uh, when 3D video games were starting to become a real big thing. And there are all these magazine articles on like PC Gamer and stuff about like, oh, programmers, they're not hiring people who program anymore for video games. They want to get all these math majors because this 3D math is so hard and you've got to optimize everything to the, the perfect degree. And so they need these math majors who are like super into like advanced calculus and geometry and everything. And I hate math. <laughs> I hate it and I still hate it and I will always just not be really into math. Uh, but by this time, I'd fallen in love with programming. And so the video game part started to, to fade away, uh, but I loved programming. So I went to college at the University of Texas at Dallas for programming and I'd given up on my dream of being a game programmer. I just wanted to program. And then in college – 
when I was nearing the end, uh, I discovered that there was a group of people who I made friends with who are members of the Student Game Developer Association. And, oh, you guys are all making video games. I, I actually really wanted to do that a long time ago. Uh, oh, okay, this is how it works. This is what you're doing. And I, I started hanging out with them. I joined their group making one of their games that we, of course, never finished. But uh, <laughs> I, I learned game programming just as a hobby when I was learning non-game programming at the same time in college. And uh, from there, they had contacts at a local company that was hiring people straight out of college. They got me a job there, and I got into the industry, and I never let go. I just clung to it with both hands. So by 3D games, this is probably going to date us. Do you mean like Ocarina of Time era? Like that kind of 3D? I guess, yeah, yeah. This is like when they were like graphics cards were starting to exist. And so like, oh, there was a voodoo graphics accelerator. And this was a big deal that you could actually get a card to put in your computer to make it do 3D stuff and do it better than, than other rendering. Ah. Oh man, I, I'm just getting nostalgic now for like the 90s. <laughs> yeah, that was like late 90s, 96 to 99, I guess, is when these articles we were, were coming excited, out. excited, like, oh my god, we can walk <laughs> in a circle around this object what? and see oh, all man. sides. Yeah. Well, what is what has kept you in in game development? Because I know with with programming, especially programming for games, is not as lucrative as being a programmer for. Um, Many other things, I think. <laughs> I think there are many other types of programming that would give you much more money. Yeah. Uh, I, a lot of it has just been that when I'm making a video game, I'm solving new problems all the time. And that is, that's what I like about programming. I like getting into something where I'm given a problem that seems insurmountable or impossible, and there's a deadline on it, and there's this time pressure, and I have to figure out how to make a thing work. And then I get it to work. And that feeling when you get something to work is so wonderful. I'm, I'm addicted. And that's what drives me. And so there's this huge thing of if I'm doing banking software or if I'm managing databases for like, oh, there's a, a car, a used car company has a database to track all of their sales and everything. And I maintain that's the same problem all the time. That's working in one small space. But in video games, I've gotten to work on pretty much every major console of the last uh, 10 years. And I've gotten to work on all different aspects of the game. I've done graphics, audio, ton of networking. Networking problems always change. Uh, I worked as a server programmer on a AAA MMO. I've worked as a gameplay programmer. I've done UI. And there's always different problems. There's always different opportunities. And there's always different things to overcome. And and that's what drives me. And I can't get that anywhere else. Aww. Have you have you always worked for AAA Studios? No, that first company that I worked for. Uh, and so the other thing is, I can out myself as every single other company I've ever worked for. <laughs> so that first company I worked for, Barking Lizards Technologies, uh, was a one of those like you don't see it as much anymore. But back then, when I first started, there's this genre in the industry of cash grab games for an IP. And so you don't see it quite the same where every time a triple A, every time a movie comes out, there's like a video game tie in back then. And a lot of the studios that used to do that work have gone bankrupt now. And you don't like see, oh, 
Iron Man 3, the video game just came. Like, it, it, there's not a game coming out with every movie release anymore. But back when I started, there was. And I worked for one of those companies. I worked for several of those companies. And the very first game that I ever worked on was a German localization of the Nintendo DS game Bratz Forever Diamonds, based off the creepy oh. dolls. Uh, <laughs> the ones with the, the giant heads and the tiny, tiny little necks. Yeah. And I, That's I, all I remember <laughs> is they had these huge giant heads and their necks were like friggin' toothpicks. Yeah. Uh, and I worked on those games until the maker of Bratz, the guy who invented them, was sued successfully because he pitched the idea to Mattel when he worked for Mattel, and then he moved to MGA, uh, and then gave them the same idea that he'd already pitched for his previous company, and you're not allowed to do that. So Mattel successfully sued them almost completely out of existence, and the game stopped being made, and it was Whoa. a thing. Yeah, the brands yeah. still exist? This is probably a sidebar, but they, I'm yeah. just... <laughs> uh, I believe that they do. However, they've made other things of the same style that don't have this problem. I think Mattel gets an amount of money for everything Brat sold, or else they settled or something for everything that had been done. But yeah, uh, but they, there's also like Monster High has the same art style and like two or three other things. Yeah, I guess that was the era. Transmedia has really come a long way, mm-hmm. I think, since the 90s and early 2000s. Because there are like, especially for these large fantasy worlds they're usually i feel like some sort of game component but they're not like direct copies of the film itself anymore they're they're yeah. like their own it's like its own thing i feel like it, it can exist independently of of the movie storyline yeah uh and you'll still have ip games like there's still spongebob games coming out i'm sure of it um, are they all mobile games this is uh, always- no uh I've, i actually worked on a number of uh, i worked on a spongebob game actually as well uh and that was how I actually figured out what SpongeBob was because I didn't pay any attention to it <laughs> until I was working on a Ratatouille cooking game. And then people were like, oh, actually, it turns out nobody wants to buy rats. Uh, that's not like a cute, endearing thing for marketing. So all of the Ratatouille stuff died out. And uh, we got our, our game that was almost the exact same, just got completely rebranded into a SpongeBob game. All my friends who love rats are slowly crying right Aww. now. <laughs> I, know. I love rats too. They're great. But uh, as, as an IP that sells well, it's hard to do. <laughs> well, I, so you've had experience then working for um, not super small, but smaller studios than AAA. And before I go on, I actually realized that I, I don't know if everyone knows what AAA studio means. Ooh. I actually don't know if I have a good definition for it, uh, but AAA would – they would be the kind of video games that you see television commercials for. Okay. So <laughs> like if, if nobody ever put a television commercial for a Bratz Forever Diamonds game that I'm aware of – actually, no, that's actually not a full thing because I've seen commercials on TV for, for games I wouldn't have thought of as AAA, just little things attached, so – I guess what are some assumptions? I'm trying to think of all the things in my head that when someone says AAA studio, what comes to mind? I I mean, my first inclination is like so much money, just lots of money. I don't know if that's accurate or not. I mean, that's that's the thing. These are these are video games as a Hollywood ideal. And that's one of the big problems in the AAA space is that these are video games as a Hollywood ideal and they're trying to follow the Hollywood method of how video games are made or, or how movies are made, but making the video games work that way. 
Ooh, you're going to have to unpack that because it's super fascinating. I've, I've never heard that comparison before, and I'm super excited to figure out what you mean by that. Oh, it's a, it's a sickness that's been in our industry for a very long time, and it's actually related to how huge amounts of money entered into the video games industry and why games are the way they are. And this is like money that entered into the game industry if we're doing like a brief history lesson, I guess, on my podcast, but like after the, the video game crash of the of the 90s, right? So you mean money in like the Western video game sphere? Uh, yeah. So a lot of video games, like California is huge for video games as well. Uh, there's, there's a number of companies that are based out there. Uh, despite the cost of living being, I don't know why anyone ever lives in California because it's so <laughs> expensive. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, um, there was a thing where movies and video games both had financial trouble at the same time. Uh, and there were a lot of people who sort of left the movie making space and instead got jobs as producers or, uh, basically like content directors or people, visionaries of the video game industry. And there were a lot of people who had had this history of being successful Hollywood uh, talking people. Like you go to a party, you talk, and then suddenly a lot of money is attached to a project. A lot of those people started coming into the games industry for people who had done that and then burned all of the bridges in Hollywood and then they come to the video games industry instead. <laughs> and they, again, are trying to get huge amounts of money. And this is something that I'm not 100% sure on the timelines for compared to when we've crashed because we've had a number of video game crashes, uh, both relating to what video games have done and what other people have done. I guess I'm thinking of the big one of uh, the one that I know of, like the great video game crash of uh, that was, was like, like the early eighties, early nineties. Uh, it was yeah. early eighties, uh, like late seventies, early eighties, which was before the Nintendo Entertainment System came out, which is why it's called the Nintendo Entertainment System. They didn't want to say it was a video game console. They they literally for their branding made it look like a VCR for no actual practical systemic or functional purpose it looks like a vcr because that's something that people have used and trust and it isn't going away so they tried to make their video games very different and it was it was not a uh, it was not a video game system it was an entertainment system and they were adamant about that in their branding yeah, and japan had a very different i guess like financial because they didn't have Hollywood to to contend with in terms of entertainment, so their their whole thing was a lot different. So now I'm really curious. So are you saying that transmedia shitty video games saved the video game industry? <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Absolutely oh, okay. not. I would actually okay. say that okay. they ruined it. Uh, <laughs> and one of the great issues that I have with the video game industry, uh, and this is this is bad for me to say as a person in, in the AAA space, <laughs> is you're the, an individual, not a yes, representative. I'm an individual and not a representative. <laughs> but one of the difficulties in the video game space right now is the obscenely large attachment of money to video games. As, uh, as well as things like video game companies that are publicly traded companies and video game companies that need to be able to track their profits on a timeline as a publicly traded company instead of being able to pursue creative vision and try and make the best games. Because the best game in the world is not going to make nearly as much money as a inoffensive middle-of-the-road game that appeals to more people but is less great. And I, I, I think I've told you this before, but the, the funniest joke in the world story is, is really just how this fits in my mind. Yeah. I mean, I, I was actually going to ask you for clarification on, like, what's the difference between best and... Profitable. Well, I was, I was, I was, I think, oh, best yeah, and right? popular. 
We should say yeah, best, best and popular. popular. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, there we go. I was uh, like, you said like a very long phrase that was very poetic, and I was like, oh no, it's gone. But popular is great. Okay, uh, so the funniest joke in the world. Uh, two two buddies are out hunting in the woods. They've been having a few drinks. They, it's late in the night. They're at the campfire. They hear a rustle in the bushes uh, just just off uh, out of the clearing. And they, uh, first guy stands up. He sees the biggest buck he's ever seen. He pulls up his rifle. He's ready to fire. And right before he does, his friend stands up in front of him, accidentally shoots his friend in the back. Oh my God. Oh my God. And he calls 911. Oh my God. Oh my God. I just shot my friend. I think he's dead. I don't know what to do. You got to help me. And the 911 operator says, sir, I need you to calm down. First off, are you sure he's dead? Hold on a second. Bang. Just back on the phone. Okay. I'm sure. <laughs> is it bad that the more times I hear that joke, the funnier it gets? I don't know why. It's so bad. It's such a bad joke. It's, it's such a bad joke. They did a thing where they had a huge number of jokes and a huge panel of people. And this is like a statistically massive set of people looking at jokes and rating them. And that is the funniest joke in the world. And it's, oh it's a joke that makes people giggle or go, uh, or smile. Or cringe. I would say a cringe. It's like, oh, oh. And I get various reactions from it. And that is the one that when you rate them one to 10 and you have millions of people rate millions of jokes, one through 10, that one bubbles up to the top. And it's not the best joke. It's the one that gets rated the highest by the largest number of people. And that's kind of where you get into difficulties in the AAA space, particularly as a publicly traded company, because you need to make that joke. You need to make the joke that the most number of people will have some sort of emotional reaction to. Yes. You need to make the, you need to make the game that is going to get the largest number of sales. And the, and this is difficult for a lot of people to understand, but the, the largest number of sales is not going to be the best game. It's going to be the game that the most people can enjoy a little. And if you look at things like Candy Crush, and if you look at things like uh, other mobile games that have just made absurd amounts of money, Pokemon Go has made absurd amounts of money. And these are games that have grabbed the cultural zeitgeist with both hands. And you, you hear people talking about these games and you hear everyone talk about playing them and billions of dollars come out of them. And none of these games are things that people are going to say, this is the best game I've ever played. It's just a game that the most people will play a fair amount. It's not life changing. It's not like the, like EverQuest ruined lives like like everquest <laughs> ruined lives ultima online ruined lives world of warcraft ruined lives there are people who lost everything to these games and they made a lot of money they were absurdly popular but there's also a limit in those of just how many people could enjoy those games because the grind necessary the time investment necessary held a lot of people back whereas we sports people bought the console and bought one game for it and that was the end uh, Wii Sports was this huge thing in the cultural zeitgeist that got the most people to play it. Despite, like, when was the last time you heard anyone talking about how great Wii Sports is? Um, I don't know if that's ever been a thing. That yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's I mean, that's, that's kind of my point. It's, it's, these are games that are incredibly popular and incredibly profitable and incredibly successful, but there's a, a conflict of interest when you're trying to make 
something. And this is uh, working in the AAA space. You kind of deal with this of we want to make the brilliant, artistic, amazing best game in the world. But at the end of the day, we do have to sell the game at some point. So I can't just go off into a silo with two or three hundred people and work <laughs> on a game and then seven years later be like, this is it. This is my Magnus. Like, this is the best game I could possibly make. It's brilliant and it tells this amazing story and the gameplay is wonderful and it's this thing. And it's like, okay, yeah, there's going to be people who play this who think it's the best game in the world and a lot of people are just never going to touch it. And when you look at how much it costs to make the game, it's impossible to recoup the cost. You'll you'll never recoup the cost of a game that's been in development that long that's not going to be broad appeal. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's uh, using a Hollywood metaphor, which now I feel like is super bad. But I'm thinking of some of these really amazing – I mean, they were Hollywood movies, but they – we're very, I guess, niche audience. I'm thinking of like Tarantino film. I mean, he's oh, not yeah. niche well, anymore, yeah. but like you have these really strong directors, these very influential, like single minded creative people who can kind of take 200 and 300 people and go and do whatever the, the fuck they want to, because for some reason they've become super famous and people want to give them lots of money. And there's not as many of those. Um, there's not as many of those yet in the game industry who can kind of organize that amount of money and, and, people power we have people who try like there's there's come i'm I'm not going to name names but like we live in austin and there's multiple studios here founded by major names in the video game industry who have that much money and clout who've pulled in like they've done kickstarters raising hundreds of millions of dollars and absurd amounts of money working on these uh, these perfect games that they're trying to make these these visions of perfection and I don't want to name names, but are you talking about like Warren Spector? <laughs> not to, I mean, not to name names, <laughs> not to name names. Well, the, the other thing, it's a small industry and I might need a job at one of those studios one of these days. And- so I can say it. I'm assuming Warren Spector is a huge, I mean, he had a whole, um, there was a thing at UT where he had a whole school, the Warren Spector, like his name was behind this like game oh, development right. school, oh, but then he got attracted by like a new game thing and kind of left. And I don't know what happened to that school i'm gonna be honest with you john romero uh the guy behind daikatana managed to make his similar thing at the university of texas at dallas where he had his own video game class and he taught people how to make video games and he was he was working as a a visionary and this is something that like happens in video games the same way that it does it happened in hollywood uh, and there's there's a lot of those parallels because the big popular Hollywood movies, the ones that make the most money are not necessarily – they're not the best films. They're good. They're popcorn flicks and, and they get people in the door. But they're not the the best films a lot of the time. They're good and I love them. Don't get me wrong. I love a lot of these films. Uh, but I think in the words of Eddie Izzard, they're, they're movies that you can eat a lot of popcorn too. Yeah. Like exactly. just like shoving it in your mouth because it's like, oh my God, this movie's so like action y. And then you leave and you're like, what happened? I don't remember, but uh, it was fun. Yeah. My heart, my heartbeat increased at some point throughout the film I but you know. you don't finish the movie and then you go talk to your friends about the meaning of these scenes and the this thing that happened and a lot of my favorite movies of the last 10 years are ones that i never heard of that a friend said oh my god you've got to watch this i never mm-hmm. saw an advertisement mm-hmm. for any of them but these are these are the great films that were just not not the ones that the most people would love 
and they're the ones that I love deeply. And there's other other films that friends of mine love deeply that I can't stand. And that's those are the high points. And it's hard for AAA to be able to find those. So as someone who I mean you do you play indie games at some point, right? Do you think indie games kind of are able to capture some of that that bestness of that's not a word man as someone who like (laughs) traffics in words sometimes i'm like i'm gonna make up something it's gonna be great but do you think indie games kind of scratch the itch for you for games that are i guess emotionally resonant yeah things like undertale undertale had a gigantic impact on me lately i've been playing stardew valley this is a game that i think i paid 15 dollars for to buy it a second time so i could have it on my switch and it's it's a game that like I spend a stupid amount of time on this game that it's not going to appeal to everyone. And it shouldn't appeal to everyone because it's a it's a simple game that I think was made by one guy who eventually enlisted the help of his friends for finaling, if I'm remembering my history right. And it's it's a game where you've got a farm and you talk to villagers and you go into the mines and you you like stab bats or something. And it's just it's fun and relaxing and so charming and wonderful. And I can't think of friends that I would recommend it to because it's not their kind of game. And that's the thing that indie gets to get away with. Indie gets to make games that are not for everyone, but the people who love it will love it. Yeah, and it's a little depressing because a lot of the times the indie developers I know of are struggling for that making a livelihood out of this thing that it's, provides it's, so much meaning. We don't really have the arts funding for games in the same way that I think. I don't know if anyone does. I assume Canada does just because I assume Canada is good at everything when it comes to (laughs) public funding, but I'm probably wrong. They (laughs) They have a video game credit in parts of Canada where they will pay you to make video games, but I believe you need to be a mid-sized studio to qualify. I'm not 100% sure. Good to know. I I have Canadian video game developer friends. You know, it's it's so funny that you're talking about... um, Games that don't appeal to everyone, mostly because I, I constantly make this joke, and I shouldn't, but it's just so funny to me that sometimes I look at Steam reviews of games, and they'll give them this one-star review. And the thing is, the review will say something like, the programming was great, the art was great, it's just this game wasn't for me, so one star. Like, it personally did not appeal to me as an, an individual, so Ugh. I think it sucks. <laughs> I, but I'm thinking of, like, for these niche audiences, right? Like, yeah. the whole idea is that it might not appeal to everyone, and that's okay. And there's enough space in the in the game industry world that we can have things that don't appeal to everyone. That's my argument. I'm sticking to it. I love your argument and I wish the gamers believed you. <laughs> it's, but like, do you see those two? I mean, I guess that's yeah, yeah, for AAA studio though. You're not, you're not unaware of, of nasty comments about video games though. I guess I shouldn't say that AAA studios don't get nasty comments. Either. Oh, we get plenty. Some deserved, <laughs> some not. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you have someone apparently told you that you made a, a child cry. Oh, yeah. That was actually really great, too. Uh, so I was working on a Sesame Street game. This is when I was working at a company called Seamless Entertainment. Uh, and I made a Sesame Street game for the Nintendo Wii and PC. And they wanted, as a marketing push, to be able to put this little uh, cover on the Wii Wiimote that was like Cookie Monster or Big Bird or stuff. And it, was little, it made the Wii Wiimote look like a thing. And then the cover that they had designed covered all of the buttons so you couldn't press them except for like one of them you could press one button and it covered the d-pad 
which meant that you wouldn't be able to use the controller properly. And so we said, okay, well, we'll put an option in the controls to where you can either have the cover on and play it that way, or you can take the cover off and just use the controller like a normal controller, the way God intended. Uh, (laughs) However... We programmed all of this. We had all of this working. The publisher came and said, no, you're forbidden from having the control buttons be used. We want to force people to play it with a cover on because that's our big marketing push. Was that sold separately out of curiosity? Was no, the it, was, control- it was attached okay. to the game itself. With, okay. It was a thing. And so you had to – if you wanted to like – select the left thing, you had to tilt the Wiimote to the left. And if you wanted to select the right thing, you had to tilt the Wiimote to the right. There's motion control gimmicks are one of the worst things to ever hit the games industry. Not because the games are bad when they do them well, but because it convinces people that every game should have it. And it causes a great deal of difficulty because not everyone can use motion controls. There's people with motor uh, motor disorders. There's people who just have trouble with it. Uh, it. It's it's not for everyone, and and everyone had this idea that the Wii Motes were motion controlled. And I don't know how many game pitches I heard of people who should know better talking about being able to like move the Wii Motes and it's, oh, it's like you're fretting on a guitar and you move the Wii Mote up and down, and that'll determine which chord you're at. And it's like, nope, that's not how it works. The Wii Mote has an accelerometer in it, a series of accelerometers in it. And basically you can tell what vector it's moving in. And you've also got your down vector for which way it's being held for gravity. Because we live on a planet. (laughs) And if you hold a Wiimote, then a force is being applied to the Wiimote because of the Earth beneath our feet, forcing it to go down. So you've always got your down vector. And as you move the Wiimote through three-dimensional space and rotate it and twist it around and move it up and down, that vector for which way it's moving will change. But it's possible to have a number of different motions cause the exact same numerical sequence of values to go through what the engine gets as data. So it's very difficult to determine the exact position of the Wiimote and what's going on with it. And so when they had us do the tilt controls, if a person tilted hard or slowly or if they rotated while they were tilting, it would cause weirdness in how the the down vector and all the numbers blended together. So the controls were not good. And we knew this. And we we told them that this is not really a solvable problem. And I know it's not a solvable problem because our tiny game worked really, really hard on it for a Sesame Street IP uh, limited release thing. And AAA games did not get it right. Like Nintendo flagship games didn't get it right. Like golf in Wii Sports was a nightmare to a lot of people who just couldn't (laughs) get it to work. The reason tennis worked was all you had to do for tennis and all you had to do for bowling was have it to where you moved the Wiimote and it caused it to – have the accelerometer show a, a vector for like out the front of the Wiimote. And if you ever saw that number going out the front of the Wiimote, you knew to trigger, trigger your input. And that was it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This, this number goes above a number and you're, you're good. And that was, that was what their flagship game to sell people on this concept did. But they wanted us to do something better for drastically less with limited time. And it didn't work. And we, we tried very hard and the PC game worked well. 
Uh, and we put our hearts into this little IP game. We worked very hard on it for the Sesame Street game that slipped under the radar, and I'm sure nobody remembers now. But we worked our butts off, and then the game comes out, and like two days later, I go over to uh, Chris, one of my coworker, uh, a friend of mine's desk, because he had reviews up, and he was looking at him, and was like, here's, look at this one. And the only thing I remember, like, there's, there's this tirade by a an a- very angry father who was laying into us. And the only thing I remember about the entire review was, congratulations, uh, congratulations to the developers. You made a six-year-old cry. The end. One star. And that was like, well, that was a lot of my life and a lot of effort on our part. And the programmers of the game were begging to let players have a better experience. But a person who was working with marketing, who'd never stepped foot in our building, made the decision that caused the game to basically alienate a large portion of its player base for because they thought it would make more money that way. And I'm assuming you were still, because you worked for not a super large company, but a larger company that you were under a gag order even then, that you couldn't like take to social media and be like, hey, just so you know, we told them this was a bad idea. I was, I was certainly not allowed to do it then. I'm pretty sure I'm still not allowed to do it now. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's awkward. Uh, I, I believe Seamless Entertainment is gone now. Uh, I left the studio when it laid off everyone down to five people. And then they were going to work on one more game to try and recover. And I believe that after that shipped, they, they folded. Well, probably because they weren't listening to their programmers. <laughs> so, yeah, geez. Just uh, kidding. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you, I mean, that story is actually really beautiful because it brings, well, not beautiful in the sense of um, uh, attractive, but beautiful in the sense of fitting the theme yeah. of kind of working for a larger company and that you don't always get to to make decisions about either the end product or what direction to take something in or even defend yourself when people on the internet say nasty things. I guess that's at least one thing that indie game, even though they do get nasty comments, it's one thing that they can do more freely is defend decisions that were made or explain some of the, the contextual reasons for why something happened the way it did. And you can't ever do that when you read these comments. Do you read comments of your games usually? I have regrettably many times had to read the comments. So on the MMO that I worked on, I worked security uh, for the MMO, as in, like, I wasn't guarding the front door, but I was uh, fighting hackers, fighting botters, uh, preventing people from exploiting the game, things like that. And I had to read the forums in order to see what people were complaining about, because the this was a thing where I cared about it, and I went out of my way in order to try and do this work on my own time if necessary to give people a better play experience. But it was also a thing where I could never tell people I was doing it publicly because one of the things about security is you don't talk about security. You, you, you <laughs> it's never like Fight Club. Like you never Rule talk one about of security, the security. Is yeah. there is no security because there's there's a thing about security and obfuscation. Security is a war, and you never tell the enemy what you're doing, mm-hmm. or at least not if you're telling the truth. <laughs> and I will say that I've lied about what I was doing publicly before, uh, but that was a special occasion. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I've, I've looked through the forums and I've typed angry responses to people on the forums and then those have not gone through because the way that our forum software works, if I type something up with my developer account, 
and post it to the forums, it actually gets sent to some guy in community. And that guy in community looks at my post and nope, delete. Uh, and then it never goes live. Nobody ever very, sees Very, very strict about developers talking to players. Uh, but a lot of the time, like I worked on server on this MMO and I was working on a lot of the backend things. So there was, there was one incidence where I screwed up. Uh, I had done a big, complicated feature. People had been asking for this since the launch of the game. And I was finally able to squirrel away enough time, and I got tasked with it. And I worked on a major feature that players loved, and, and they appreciated. And it it involved completely rewriting our persistence system for the game. Which is like when when a player is playing an MMO and they log out and they log in again, they expect everything to be exactly as they left it. You should never lose progress in an MMO and you never hit save in an MMO. Not only that, everyone in an MMO has to see the exact same view of the world. And the game was structured in a way that one of the things we were going to add, we couldn't just toss in because the way that the persistence worked blocked it from functioning effectively. Uh, it would just would have been a non-starter, so I had to rewrite it. I we launch it, it goes live. We tested the hell out of this thing; everything looked good. And then a little while later, I get a message saying that the my boss's 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 boss for the launch of this big expansion that added this new feature couldn't get into the game. <laughs> and then I got a few more messages about high-level executives of our company who wanted to see this big deal thing that launched, couldn't play the game. And everyone else could. And that was really weird. Like, all these other people could play the game just fine. But when these people try and log in... Just not the people that were paying you. Uh, the people who, who were paying were fine. Mostly. <laughs> mostly, actually. And I, that's, oh, the, that's okay. where the problem is. Uh, the vast majority of players were playing just fine, and nobody knew there was a problem. It was just... The, it started out where this bug only affected executives. And I'm losing my mind uh, trying to figure out what's going on. And it turns out that there was a mistake in the code where when a CSR looked at a character, it locked the character in a way that the character was not properly unlocking and they, they, no one could log into the account again. And it just it basically – it says a CSR owns this forever now. Goodbye. And what they had done is <laughs> – uh, the the top level executives who earn like seven or eight figures or whatever, they don't play our game start to finish, but we wanted to be able to show off things to them. So these people who were going to play the game for one day got special characters and CSRs gave them a couple of items so they'd be able to log in and be like, oh, yes, la, the studio is making a thing and then not play it anymore. But the CSRs logged into all of these executives' characters to give them these things. And a couple of the executives – do play the game and play it a fair bit. And also got the same thing. Like, oh, a couple little items for, for the, for the top level people. And it was, it was a thing where none of them could play and I'm losing my mind. And then a few players started, uh, posting on the forums about this. I'm like, oh no, oh no, no. And I, I frantically work very, very hard. I fix the issue. I get it all sorted out. And then I, I do a push and we, we bounce the shards and the next day everything should be fine. And the next day, I'm looking in the forums to make sure that everything's fine because I'm freaking out and that's what I do. And there's a person who posts and they say, I still can't play the game. These developers suck. Everyone's so lazy over there. Da, 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 da. I can't believe I'm paying for this crappy game. 
Oh, as you're up at like 2 a.m. reading forum posts. Uh, no, no, this was this was like 10 in the morning, and I had already been cooking at this point because I've been up all night. Uh, so I get there, I'm like, oh, oh crap. I'm taking this person seriously. They're still broken. I do a poll of the character data, and I find out that this person uh, – I, I had been allowed – oh, sorry. I'm, I'm kind of like going back a little bit. I had been allowed to post back and forth with this guy a little bit because I asked for more information. He gave me more information, uh, and then I started looking into it, and I found that before his initial post saying that he still wasn't able to play the game, he logged into the game went into an area, accepted two quests, killed some things, completed a quest, then went to the forums to post that he was not allowed into the game. So I wrote a reply to him. Uh, <laughs> and for some reason, community did not let my reply go live. And they said, no, 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 let him complain. I personally was upset because I felt that this made us look bad because I fixed the, I fixed the bug. I worked very hard. But people – a person literally lied about the bug still affecting them. And then other people in the comments were like, man, screw this company and they're, they're lazy and they're bad and their programmers are all terrible. And I'm like, well, this is my life. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. I mean I can't imagine I, – I think that – uh, I don't even have the right <laughs> words for how frustrating that would be because I, I often work in like smaller nonprofits and the few times that I've had to just suck it up when someone else in my job or like someone complained and it wasn't a real complaint or a lie or someone else messed up and it wasn't me, but I had to like take the brunt of it. Um, it's like that's very emotionally stressful. It's, it's <laughs> draining. Especially because you care a lot. Like it's something that matters to you. I did not stay at work that late at night because somebody told me to. <laughs> I stayed at work that night that late because I fucked up and I was like, well, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make sure that everyone can play the game because I, I want – I was really proud of this feature and I wanted everyone to be able to have a good time playing our game. And it's, it's that way for most of the AAA developers that I've ever known in my entire life. We want people to enjoy the games. We want to make something amazing. And sometimes stuff just gets in the way. Yeah, I'm thinking of there's all these assumptions and I think I've heard it from indie developers too where there's this idea that people who are just they just say AAA studios or they say like conglomerates or whatever like these big names like oh they just want your money they just want to take your stuff they don't really care about the quality of the game like I've heard people say this uh, indie developers and it whenever I talk to you it actually makes me think that all this time when we're asking people to be empathetic and nice to indie developers, the same also goes for AAA companies. Like, we forget that there's 300 people who worked on this game who at least 50% care. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say, like, at bare minimum, probably more, but a lot of people really care about the quality of their work. And, like, whenever you talk about a game and, like, accuse the people who made it of being purposefully shitty, you're actually accusing a lot of individuals of, of being personally very shitty. Not just this faceless, weird guy in a suit who who never reads the comments, probably. <laughs> Lazy, I think, is the most common complaint I've ever seen about uh, the AAA developers. Uh, probably for every development uh, level. But people people call the development team lazy all the time. 
completely not understanding the effort that it takes to go into a lot of these tasks. Uh, they're lazy for not adding multiplayer to the single player game. And yeah, it's that like, takes like two days, right? Yeah, it's tops. Like, <laughs> like the, the first thing you do is go to the top of your Python file because this game's apparently written in Python. You type import multiplayer and then you just add like uh, eight or nine lines of code in different places. And as a person, as a person who spent the last decade, like I have never been able to escape the multiplayer aspect of video games. The very first game that I worked on, I was working on multiplayer bugs and that German localization because a bug appeared because German words are too long and that broke the game in multiplayer. <laughs> uh, so from my literal first game that I worked on to now, I'm a person that they throw out these multiplayer problems and it's not easy. There's, I mean, you said you did networking, right? Which is yeah, the, yeah. the base component of, of multiplayer. Yeah, I, I literally was a server software engineer on this MMO. And let me tell you, server on an MMO, I, I had a fair amount of work to do. Uh, you know, they kept me reasonably busy, I guess. It's so weird that people think AAA folks are, are lazy because at the same time you hear all these exposés about how shitty it is. To, <laughs> no offense. Yeah. Um, to work at these larger studios because of, I mean, there's the high level of stress because you have all of these crunch times. I know they're calling them something different and like formatting them differently these days, but historically they've expected 40 plus hours a week from many of their their folks for extended periods of time in previous previous eras and like it's not and it's not easy problems because you're also trying to collaborate and work with 200 other people yeah which always takes a lot of time like try deciding where you want to go to dinner with five people and just <laughs> multiply that by 500 and that's about how difficult i imagine it is oh, geez, to make yeah. a game with that many people i don't know it's just it's very it's like a lot of cognitive dissonance for me when i hear both of those at the same time yeah uh we all take a pay cut to work in the games industry and we all work a lot of hours. That first job that I had, uh, I found out later that I'd been working on uh, 98 hour work weeks for that first year that I was there before I quit. Uh, just oh, cr- crunching on these terrible <laughs> games. Like the, These games were terrible. We tried to make them good. But it was just, they weren't expected to be good. They were expected to have uh, an IP on the cover. And then people would buy it because of that. And so we were, we were trying to make good games and we were passionate and we worked our, our butts off. Had I worked two jobs at McDonald's for a minimum wage, I would have made more money that year. Like that's not even with overtime. That's like two different jobs at minimum wage. I, my hourly rate fell below minimum wage, uh, in that salaried position. And it was a nightmare. But, and it, yeah. yeah. And you, but you just wanted to, to make a living doing something that you've wanted to do since you were what? 10 years old, 12 years five. old, five, yes, <laughs> like, five, like five, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ugh, that's well, I mean, what keeps you going through all of that? Cause it sounds like working at a larger studio, you're balancing your own personal love for wanting to do a good job, but having to sometimes accept less than what you want. And often I assume you release games knowing there are issues, but knowing there's a time crunch and they need to get it out. You yeah. have to like hope that they'll allow you the time to fix it. Yeah. Uh, Later, I'm making all of this up off the top of my head. No, 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 but that's legit. Uh, <laughs> okay. there's, there's a thing in the games industry. It's a saying that I've heard again and again and again all over the place. A game is never done. It's just shipped. <laughs> because you can work on a game forever. And one of the things of eventually I would like to be paid. 
uh, and because I would eventually like to be paid, the work that I do has to have a monetary value. So I have to finish it. I have to get it out the door and it has to make enough money that they can continue to pay me. And let me tell you, my favorite thing about working in AAA is that I have not been laid off in seven years. That's delightful because those small studios, especially the ones doing IP work, most of those studios ended up closing. So, I mean, the paycheck is the thing that keeps me going. The fact that I have a lot more job security because I'm insulated uh, a great deal just by the the magnitude of everything involved. Uh, But the other thing is I've personally found that breaking things into smaller tasks is necessary to make a game of a large size. And it's also something that keeps me going in terms of when I deliver a thing in the game, it is immediately seen by other people working on the game. And a lot of the time, the work that I do, the designers are the consumer. So if I, if I fix something about it, like right now I'm working on AI. And I, I think I'm allowed to say that. Uh, <laughs> and when I add a feature to the game about like, oh, I've added a thing to where now this creature can determine these aspects of the locations around it. And that means if you would like a creature to be able to take cover, but know that somebody else has taken cover there. So you would like to have like your guy run over and be either next to him and try and like crouch. Or if you'd like your guy to say, hey. I'm higher ranking than you. You leave and I'm going to take your cover spot. I've added that support. And then the designers all go, yay, because they get to make creatures behave the way that they want. And the game gets better. And we see this iterative improvement of the quality of the game over time as as things improve, as things uh, get better. And, and my work in these small things has value. So the very long dev cycle of AAA, I'm still finding those wins the entire time that I'm going. I'm still... I'm still solving complicated problems. I'm still figuring out a solution and I'm still enjoying that. And if I'm holding on to that, I can make my passion to make a great game out of those pieces and, and drive it as best as I can, because I'm not going to be in a triple A game in the position where I can say, you know what? I think that this story element here would actually work much better if instead of them doing this thing with this thing over here at this place, they did this other thing. And I have to be incredibly vague because I'm trying not to give away what game I'm currently working on. But we do this other thing at this other place with this this other thing. Do the thing with that other thing that they're doing with the big thing, you know, the big thing. Yeah, I get what what you're doing with the MacGuffin, (laughs) but wouldn't it be more interesting if these other people had the MacGuffin and you had to do that? Oh, like I'm never going to get to have that conversation on a AAA game because it's literally not my job. My job right now is to make creatures behave in a way that is visually interesting and as far as gameplay and mechanics are concerned, fun. And my my responsibilities are in that focus on that thing. So when I'm making my test level and it is just a flat plane of Earth and I've got creatures running around and doing complicated things sometimes or running around and doing these new behaviors I've created. That's that's what I love making and doing and then giving these tools to the designers so that they can put them in or then three weeks later decide, oh, actually, we've decided to cut that feature that you just spent the last month on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, both happen. Like- <laughs> 
Uh, we've all we've all been there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what you do doesn't matter anymore. Thanks. <laughs> well, bye. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's kind of nice because it sounds like a lot of your feedback loop is with other people that you're working on the game with. Because you don't have as much of that immediate feedback loop with the direct feedback loop with the fans, but you do have that direct feedback loop with other people who also care about the quality of the creatures. And we'll that's, say, like that's been game. the very big difference between working on the game that I'm on now that is currently in, in production and it is not yet launched. And the, the work experience of that, like AAA or not, the work experience of that side of games versus the work experience of a launched product that you're adding things to and changing that's a live service, those are entirely different worlds. Uh, and the live service side, the MMO side, I was able to engage a lot with the players. And I went to like fan events where I talked to players in person at bars who were super excited about our game. And they were in these big guilds and they were talking about these raids and they were telling us what they wanted in the future. As of, it's a very different thing compared to the game that's not out yet where I'm getting my feedback from the other developers. Uh, both are good. Uh, I kind of prefer what I'm doing now a little bit more just because uh, I'm getting fewer death threats. So, yeah, that's kind of nice. <laughs> well, yeah, I was going to say that about some of the anonymity of working for some of these uh, huge yeah. studios. It's it's not just to protect the, the company, but it's also to protect you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. People, people on the internet get mad. Uh, what? Yeah, I've never. It's, it's strange. I've never seen that. And there was there was a thing recently on Twitter. Uh, I meant to look it up for more details, but I'm just going to ramble from what I remember. <laughs> where a person a person had said something like, uh, "Game developers would." Oh, there. It started with a thing where game developers like share the hack that you're most proud of in a video game. Mm -hmm. uh, this was something where like, oh, we couldn't get this one thing to work. So here's the clever solution that we found to sort of skirt the problem. And it was like, oh, uh, this game won't work if you don't have this uh, if you don't have this one expansion card for like the extra memory expansion. And you don't need it to play the game, except that when you're not on the dev kit, if you don't have this thing plugged in, the game crashes. So they shipped that memory expansion with the game, this was, I think, Perfect Dark on the N64, if I'm remembering right. I, I mm -hmm. might be crossing my games, but there was a thing where, like, the game didn't need it to function, like, ostensibly. Like, it didn't use that extra memory, but something was going wrong in a memory assignment somewhere where if you didn't have that plugged in, the game would crash at a certain point. So they just shipped it with a box. They shipped that with it, and they said it requires it. And... It was, it was, uh, that was an expensive, uh, workaround, but there's, there's all kinds of little hacks that went on. And then, like, developers were sharing these stories and they were fascinating and I loved them. And then gamers saw it. And as soon as gamers came in to what the developers were talking about and the gamers started judging it, not as developers, but as gamers who think that the developers are lazy, cheap people who just want to rip them off for money, they started laying into the developers and sending threats and calling them lazy and saying they were terrible people, but they don't understand the difficulty of the problems that they were facing and the difficulty of the solutions and how clever a lot of them were. Like there's, There was something where a developer talked about a concept called frustum culling and how they got that working on a game. And frustum culling is... Uh, you have this thing in a 3D game called your view frustum. It is the camera and looking in front of you. And so these are the things rendered to the monitor. And people were talking about solutions that they had to make sure that only the things being rendered were tracked by the game. 
so that you were not burning CPU cycles, you were not burning energy or memory on things that were behind the player, because you don't need to animate a thing that's not being seen. And some clever, clever solutions in that. And, people, and I assume that the more that's being animated, the more likely it is that the game will crash. Which uh, Not just crash, but this is performance. People are demanding 60 FPS uh, 4K games on consoles now. Like... The the new gener like the the new Xbox is either out or coming out soon, which is a 4K console that can actually play video games in 4K in theory at 60 FPS. And gamers are now demanding this without understanding how difficult that is. And when people were talking about the frustum calling and how like here's some solutions that we had to improve performance by not doing stuff that doesn't matter for the game, gamers laid into them and said you're a terrible person for trying to come up with something. You're being very lazy. You should just make your game work more efficiently for all the things that are not currently being like it, it made no sense. But they were calling the developers lazy or or being angry at them. And it was just this absurd thing that you don't get to 60 FPS without doing these things. And so an article came out saying developers would be a lot more eager to talk about game development with fans and about their games with fans if fans didn't immediately launch into death threats. And in response to that article, fans immediately launched into death threats. <laughs> Because um, the internet's awful. I want a GIF, a GIF that says like proving my point. <laughs> it was it was a thing. Like developers need to be more thick skinned and they need to just put up with what the fans are doing. They're supposed to love what they do, and if they really loved what they would do, then what we say wouldn't matter. And that's just people on the internet being terrible. Aww. Which is another reason I don't talk about the company that I currently work for, because if I get death threats, I'd rather they not go to my work email. Uh that's happened <laughs> to coworkers of mine before, and it's a problem. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah, that yeah. makes me so upset. Having a multiple coworkers of mine before. Uh, yeah, that's a thing. That's a thing. Oh, uh, the Reddit story, actually. This this kind of ties into that. I, I mentioned before the podcast that I had a Reddit story. Uh, there was a thing recently on Reddit. Uh, somebody posted, there's a uh, thing like Ask Reddit, uh, why do people, whatever. And it was like, why do people hate this company? And somebody posted a single reply, like like the, the the top post was like, I don't know why people hate this company. I play video games. I've enjoyed a lot of their games. Uh, I don't know what makes people so mad. And then a person replied with, Well, this company did something like ten years ago that everyone's still mad about. And then the original poster comes back with like, Oh wow, fuck that company. Screw those guys. I'm not going <laughs> to buy their games anymore. Oh my god. I was like, this is probably totally different employees from yeah. ten years like, ago. <laughs> It was it was an absurd situation where, like, Blue Bell ice cream literally killed people because they lied about having their ice cream being contaminated with wisteria and people literally died because it happened not once but twice that exposures caused illness. And when Blue Bell ice cream went back into stores at HEB, people lined up and cheered and celebrated. But when a video game doesn't meet the perfect ideals of a gamer, there's death threats. I'm assuming the thing that they messed up was not something related to, like, social justice, but, like, a, a tech feature? Uh, oh, it was uh, the way they operated the business. Hmm. Like, okay. Which, which, again, 
working in the AAA space, people have no idea what's going on. A recent example, uh, Electronic Arts recently closed Visceral Studios. And all of these meme posts came out, again, on Reddit and Facebook and Twitter. And the people who I've worked with have also posted some of these. And it was driving me crazy because they were talking about EA acquiring game studios and then killing them. However, like Penny Arcade weighed in on this with one of the more asinine posts they've ever done. There's quite a few of the ones they've done. Because EA never acquired Visceral. EA founded Visceral. Visceral was originally called Electronic Arts Redwood Shores. And it was a game studio that was founded by Electronic Arts. And Electronic Arts closed a studio that they had originally founded, and people ranted about Electronic Arts acquiring and then killing game studios. And then all of these people are ignoring articles coming out by people who worked there saying, by the way, the project was actually deeply troubled, and this may have been a mercy killing. And I i don't know anyone on that project. I know a lot of people at a lot of studios and a lot of the games industry that I want to point out. I don't know anyone who worked on that project. I don't know anyone at Visceral, uh, to my knowledge. But they seemed to be less angry about it than some of the people on the internet, which was weird about the people losing their jobs. From some of the follow-up things I've seen. Yeah, I think when we get into these like super huge companies, and this is the same with any super huge company, the stakes are really high, for one, mostly because they are employing so many people. And I'm hearing you say that you have job security, which is really rare in the game industry. Like, that's not... That's not normal. I feel like most people I know who are game developers operate in a very similar way to some of my friends who work in film does, which is very contract-based, so you might make money when you're working on a project, but then when it's over, you have no idea when you'll be working again, and that's kind of, like, up in the air. So to have, like, a company where you're, like, actively trying to, like, provide health insurance Uh and, like, regular employment and, like, benefits and I'm hoping retirement in some case, Um, all these things, you also have to, like make these really and I'm not saying they made the right choice I don't know I'm not a a business person but all of those things go into these considerations for these AAA games including the content of the game and making sure it sells as much as it can because they're responsible for I'm I'm giving a rosy glow I'm sure many of them are like the really high executives probably do want to make a fuck ton of money to like take baths in in their yachts or That's whatever plan but, but i've not gotten there yet i'm still trying to but climb the actual that people ladder. who work at the company are like we're making these things because we love them because we want job security because which are all care, very yeah. human yeah you like the games and you like eating regularly in a house oh my god i love eating <laughs> i don't know maybe I'm, I'm going off on a soapbox i just think that the decisions people make are often complicated and it's easy to send out tweets that make it seem really simple when it's not yeah yeah it's uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect, something like that, where people – the more you know about a thing, the more the, the more you know about a thing, the less you think you know. And the less you know about a thing, the more you act like you know. And so there's a lot of people who don't know anything about video game development who will just act like they are the biggest experts in the world. And uh, I, I will say the developers, when we see these tweets and these forum posts, we will always roll our eyes and be like, oh, my God, they're doing it again. Uh but it's nice that you have people to do that with. I don't know. Oh, yeah, I, no, I feel that's like great. sometimes that's with my, my indie my indie game friends, it is very isolating. I mean, unless you talk to other indie game people, but it can be if you're on a small team, um I, I feel like sometimes it's more difficult to like hold your hold up your self esteem. Yeah. <laughs> <Maybe. laughs> 
especially because their identities are so tied up in the company name. Like, I, I it's kind of sad that you have to give the legal thing, and I totally understand it. But I, I'm realizing now at the end of this conversation that there's some like psychological protection in that. Also, is yeah. that it is not your company. So like, it might be your thing that you're working on, but like when people say blank company. Sh- you know, sucks ass, uh, which should not be an insult for the record anyway. But because um, there are people who enjoy that. I don't know. Anyway. So, yeah. So when people say it sucks ass and they mean it as an insult, you can like kind of step back and be like, well, that's not personally. I mean, it affects you as someone who works on the game, but it's not personally about you. It, it's not, but it is like I'll I'll make a friend and eventually the subject of where I work comes up. And then I work for a AAA studio, which means a lot of people hate me. No. Because there's there is literally zero AAA studios out there that are innocent. There's zero AAA studios out there that don't have people raging against them, and usually rightly so. Uh, there are good critiques, which I've I've enjoyed that you often say you you sometimes read forums to find things to fix. And- yeah, yeah, and that's that's a thing. There's there's good critiques, but there's angry people. <laughs> yes. That is very true. And and sometimes I'll I'll meet a person, I'll talk about working at that company, like, oh, you would work there. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, they pay me very well, and they treat me very well. And I'm, I've worked on two games at the studio, and I've been excited about both of them. And I have been proud of both of them. And both of them, like, the first one, it got dragged because every game will get dragged. And the second one, there's going to people, be people out there who drag it. But there's also people who play their, the, that first one who love it. And I've met them, and I've gone to events that were about our game. And I've seen the joy in their faces, and I've seen people excitedly tell me stories of things that happened to them in the game that I made. And they cared enough, and they were just like, they couldn't stop talking about how much they loved it. And that mattered too. Like, that that mattered a lot. Uh, so I'm proud of the games, and I know there's people out there who really, really love them. And I'm hoping that even though I'm trying to work, even though the highest up levels have this push towards a game that's going to be broad appeal and sort of like a low maximum enjoy- like we people should love the game and there should be people who are crazy about the game we want like i think i think the highest levels of upper management want billions of people to li- like be crazy about the game and say this is the best game that's ever been made but that's going to be unrealistic because we we kind of need to appeal to the most people to make a game that they're going to like a lot and talk about and care about uh, but I know that for, for all of the pushes and all of the directions and all of the difficulties and fights and like sudden changes of what the features are going to be like and, and redoing of major components, at the end, there's going to be somebody who loves this game and that matters. Oh, <laughs> so cute. And I love it so much. If only because I, I think if I have to do one thread amongst all of these these conversations I've had with developers about things that make them sad, there's such a huge and very beautiful focus on the people that like love your game and find it meaningful. Um, and that that dedication, I guess that drive to like give someone a, an experience that is meaningful to them in some way. And, and I think that's beautiful. I'm, I'm just going to sit here <laughs> and bask in my like, oh, game developers. I mean, oh. there are some shitty game developers, but the oh, ones yeah. I hang out with are wonderful. <laughs> <So> <laughs> we're going to leave it at that. Well, cool. Well, before we sign off, um, 
I, I wanted to ask, is there anything else that you would like people to know about AAA studios? Um, uh, real people work here. I, I think, I think that the, the biggest thing I can say is that when, when you're talking about a game, real people work there. And this is something that I've sort of taken, uh, working and seeing the reactions of people to stuff that I've worked on. I started realizing that anytime you see something that's been created, you, that was somebody's job. Like it was somebody's job to make this thing and they worked on it and they did, they did the job and they're not, phon- I promise you, they're not phoning it in. They're, they're going to care about the stuff that they're working on and they're going to try and make it, uh, successful because otherwise somebody else would make it because they'd be doing anything, anything, literally anything else that's less stressful. <laughs> uh, but I, it, would, it would just be great if people could remember that we are real. We want to make something amazing and we, there's people who I've seen in impassioned screaming arguments with each other in a studio about what they believe is best for the game and what they think is going to make them more like more players, the the happiest they can possibly be. Uh, and then we, we work, we work hard on it. We're real people and we're trying. Uh, so, you know, Maybe don't say we all are lazy and we suck because, you know, I I don't think we are. Well, folks, you heard it here first. Game developers are humans. Big surprise. I'm I'm worried that that's actually going to be like a newspaper article on Kotaku where they go, oh, my God, did you know that these are real people? Oh, my God. We oh, no, we screwed up. Oh, we screwed up. <laughs> oh, geez. Yeah. Well, um. <laughs> you know, empathy is a very hard skill that children learn at the ripe old age of five or Three. six. Um, oh, yes. Uh, oh, that was good. Ah, I, I think there's actually, for those of you who care about South by Southwest Gaming, I, I've heard rumors that there's a panel that's actually, it's called I Hate Your Game, and it's about fostering empathy in gaming communities. Oh. I think that's something, yeah, which I I really love this this conversation, and I and I think it goes both ways. So I'm going to end on saying like empathy is like a multidirectional thing and being empathetic does not mean you can't voice things that are not working for you. There's just different ways to express critique that maybe are more aware of the fact that you're speaking to a person. And I think larger companies do a lot to try to make it seem like you're not speaking to a real person. But but you are. So and that goes for game developers to fans, too. I've seen some nasty comments on Twitter from game developers about their fans. May so. have made them. <laughs> oh, you're on yeah. my Twitter. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it goes, yeah, all the all these directions. Uh, players to players, players to developers, developers to players. Um, so I think I'm going to end on, on asking people to think about the ways in which they are and are not empathetic to either game developers, if they are players, or to players, if they are game developers, um, or I don't know if maybe game developers to other game developers are not very empathetic in the workspace. I'm going to assume sometimes, sometimes not. <laughs> sometimes it's a human condition to forget that humans are humans, I think. Um, but yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for coming. This was like a really fun conversation. I so rarely get to, to talk about the intricacies of triple a studios. So I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your over a decade of experience, I guess, working for, for game companies. I had a great time as well. Thank you very much for having me.
Thanks. All right. And everyone in, enjoy the, the rest of your day. And we'll, we'll see you next time on Gaming Broadcast. Bye.